2: Welcome back to Significant Others. I'm Liza Powell O'Brien. In our last episode, we learned about the relationship between Virginia Woolf and her father, Sir Leslie Stephen, who was a complicated man, to say the least. When I was researching this episode, I couldn't help but be struck by how Sir Stephen's approach to parenting was practically an inversion of the kind of thing we see today. So I wanted to talk it through with one of the premier experts on modern parenting trends, Julie Lithcott-Hames, author of the books How to Raise an Adult and Your Turn: How to Be an Adult, which is now available in paperback. Julie, thank you so much for talking with me. I want to start with this idea of access, which is something I noticed in this somewhat tortured relationship between Virginia Woolf and her father. Is there a sort of guiding principle for you in terms of finding that balance between giving our kids access to all the things they need to succeed and then exposure to things that might kind of light their fire in a positive way.
0: Well, yeah, I think that's it, Liza, in a nutshell. The fact that balance is required, that Mm -hmm. we don't want to be, and I think nobody listening would be in danger of underserving our kids by providing them with nothing, (laughs) neither resources nor hope nor opportunity. Like nobody's, I mean, People who find themselves in that circumstance are likely dealing with their own poverty, mental illness, systemic issues that are impeding their ability to show up for their kids. The other side of the spectrum is problematic for completely different reasons. When we over-attend and over-handle, give them too much that they could have gotten for themselves, solve too much that they could have tried to solve for themselves planned the path for them when this is their life and they ought to be planning it themselves. When we overdo it out of an abundance of caution and intention to secure a certain future, we undermine their agency, we undermine their resilience. They can continue to grow chronologically, but they don't know how to do for themselves and that damages them psychologically. And so the balance is absolutely key. And to the point of the dad of Virginia Woolf, You know, when I looked at, like, what did he do and what didn't he do, he seemed to be so keenly interested in ensuring she was given access to literature and therefore information and knowledge and ideas. And yet he couldn't go far enough in his own limited 19th century existence to undo the patriarchy. He was very much a supporter of and a beneficiary of the patriarchy. He didn't seem to be able to see how he was basically, if there are 10 steps toward opening the world to his daughter, he maybe got her to step three, which was more than most dads were able to do or interested in doing with daughters in that era. But there were so many more steps. He wasn't brave enough to say, my daughter has the brilliance, the talent, the will, the wherewithal to learn and grow further in this space, and we should open doors for her. And he didn't. And... And that has to have something to do with the neuroses of the household and ultimately with, you know, what ultimately ailed her and made her come to the conclusion that that life was not meant
2: to continue to be lived by her. My question in response to that, and this is just, you know, sort of armchair historianizing, <laughs> is he clearly was interested in his children being successful, I guess, in a Victorian description, right? That they would be uh, at a certain position in society and that they would be well-to-do and that they would be cultured. And I think he probably clearly approached his sons differently than his daughters. But in terms of that urge to open the world to your child, I don't know how much it was that. You know what I mean? Like that feels to me a very modern perspective. And you note sometimes in your work that there's been this, you know, shift clearly since the early 1900s, but also really in the last 20 to 30 years toward a more hyper-functional parenting, you know, almost a smothering sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if you have any sense of what has gotten us there.
0: Absolutely.
2: Yes, you pointed out that it's
0: been 20 or 30 years. It's actually been close to 40. When we look at the systemic changes afoot in modern American parenting, there were five shifts underway all in the same three- to four-year time frame in the mid-1980s. Hmm. How do I know this? Because the first college students to come, the cohort who first came to college with a set of parents who could not let go who could not trust that their kid could manage the day-to-day aspects of college life. That was the late 1990s. It was the first kids to be subjected to these changes in childhood in the mid-'80s. So let me briefly name them in no particular order. The concept of Stranger Danger was born in 1983 with a horrific made-for-TV movie dramatizing one particular case of Adam Walsh's Abduction and murder. So everybody's now on hyper alert to this infinitesimal possibility uh, that something atrocious could happen. And we began shifting childhood accordingly. Um, So now play was watched. Children were watched in grocery stores and malls and on sidewalks and in parks by very vigilant parents trying to do the right thing, but maybe overreaching. The play date was born in 1984. Moms were going into the workforce in the 70s. We came home and let ourselves in in the 70s. I'm Gen X. That's what I did. But by the 80s, there was a lot of judgment around this is not safe for children to be home alone. We need all these after school things. We need to arrange play. They can't just trust kids to go find play like they need to have adult involvement. So the play date was born. We became really safe In our cars and on our bicycles, in every single state across America, we passed laws around bike helmets, seat belts and car seats. These were Mm. technological advancements that made us safer on the roads. Very important but led to us being enamored with the degree to which technology could prevent everything. And so we have little anti-skid bumps on the bottom of toddlers' socks so they don't fall. Well, guess what? Toddlers are supposed to fall, right? So we began bubble wrapping everything in the house, the hypervigilance around Nothing shall ever remotely cause you an ounce of pain. All of that was happening. And then the self-esteem movement, ribbons and trophies, certificates and awards just for being on the soccer team, not for being any good. And then A Nation at Risk was published, same era, saying American teenagers are just floundering at these international tests of academic competency, and we need more homework and more teaching to the test so we can get our test scores up. And all of these things happened between 1981 and 1985. Mm. And so that's what changed. And all of this achieves a short-term win. We protect our kids when we're always there. They look like they're being aided. Only with psychologists delving into, like, wait a minute, what are the correlations between this stuff? Have we seen all of these short-term things constantly being there and vigilant. It looks like it helps short-term
2: gain, long-term pain. Let's put it that way. As you talk about sort of an antidote to all of this, it being sort of to maintain the ballast, right? And to sort of withstand all of the extremities and the and the craziness of whatever, you know, media winds are blowing. I had a child psychologist recommend once to me when my daughter was very upset about something and this person said it's your job to right size her anxiety and that was such a useful phrase for me you know because there there's also a lot of sort of conventional wisdom about honoring feelings and letting people vent and all of that stuff which is of course true but then there's such a thing as also reflecting back you're okay right you're actually it's
0: okay both. It's both, yes. So what we do better today than in prior generations is acknowledge feelings. Mm. Many of us grew up in cultures and families where we weren't to have feelings. And I can certainly very much relate to that um, being raised by a stiff upper lip British mother Mm. whose Mm. method of surviving the stuff she dealt with in life was just get on with it and don't acknowledge the pain. That wasn't healthy for me, but I get that that is how she survived. Um, So now we know, now millennials and Gen Z have been raised with, hey, feelings matter, differences matter, you know, and just sit and be with it. Often we're uncomfortable with our kids' discomfort, so we want to make it go away, prevent it from happening in the first place, or tell them, oh, that's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. None of that is good. We're supposed to empathize with it, and then, as you said, empower.
2: Yeah, that's the piece that I think often gets lost, at least speaking personally is yeah. that you know the the emphasis is so much on um I was raised by a child therapist so the maybe the opposite of your mother's perspective yeah. but um you know because there is a point at which hearing you know you've done hard stuff is incredibly empowering and so that's a very useful message mm. to to be reminded of um when i was really getting into this story of these two characters the idea of genius was so prevalent right that Virginia Woolf talks about how the cult of genius was such a thing for her father's generation that all these men were obsessed with being geniuses and re- being regarded and looking a certain way and acting a certain way and it be- excuses all sorts of awful behavior and and I feel that that just totally anecdotally and in my experience as a parent that cult shifted at least in my era toward the you know trying to cultivate genius in children Is that something that resonates for you? Is that something that you feel is at play ever? A hundred percent. I'm talking with you from the San
0: Francisco Bay Area, (laughs) specifically Silicon Valley, specifically Palo Alto. And there are a few places that are worse at this than us or better, depending on whether you value it or not. Got it. Um, This notion that, well, a couple things. My child is a genius, (laughs) Mm -hmm. period. Mm -hmm. Uh, My child should be a genius, the world will look well upon me if my child is a genius. Like again, the child are the the, the inanimate object right. that that we need to prove our opinions or the worth of our own existence. So what I like to say toward this notion of the cultivation of genius is it's like we have entered in the Westminster dog show, <laughs> our dog, the child, and mm. we are going for best in class, best in breed, best in show. And at the end of the day, when we win that, which is the equivalent of the bumper sticker from the Air Quotes Wright College on the back of our car, Mm. we go home with that trophy. Like this child, this dog, it just needs more kibble and a pat on the head. And that works for dogs, but it doesn't work for humans who want to craft their own path and want to decide which hoops to jump through and which not and want to deal with their own obstacle course and want to always know they're loved by family, by a set of friends but want to forge their own path in life. And mm-hmm. so the hubris, the arrogance of I will make my child into a this or that is, you know, we call it tiger parenting. You will be mm-hmm. a doctor, you'll be an engineer, the only five acceptable thing, you'll be a tennis star. You know, this sense of what constitutes success and that it is somehow attached to you have to be a genius Mm -hmm. uh, is harming our kids. We all want to be loved and cherished because we breathe, because we exist, right? Not because we got all A's or because we got into this school. We're desperate, you, me, everybody listening, desperate to know I will be loved and accepted as I am even when I stumble, even if I lose, even when this and that, right? I We wanna know intrinsically that we matter and we're valued, not as a function of our IQ or what school we got into or how much salary we have or how big the house is or the type of car we drive. My heart is swelling just listening to you. <laughs> oh, Liza, you've got me on my soapbox now. I
2: love it.
1: Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Imagine,
2: you just got home from work, dinner is ready, wine is chilled, and your man has offered you
0: 15 minutes of heaven in the form of a foot massage. And then he says, Your spray tanning session is now complete. What just happened? you found your escape at Palm Beach Tan. Break from the chaos at a Palm Beach Tan near you and leave rejuvenated. Take
1: time for yourself at Palm Beach Tan. And take that feeling with you wherever you go. Get up to $25 off your first month. Featuring Australian Gold. Perfect man, not included. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches, but there's only one Crispy, So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch, when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great.
2: Hi, it's Martha Stewart.
0: You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt.
2: Leslie Stephen aspired to be at this level of genius, but he raised a genius instead. In your work and experience, do you ever encounter situations where there's that tension when maybe the kid is better at something the parent wanted to do? Like, the parent wanted to be a tennis star, but the kid is better at tennis. Is that something you ever see? Um, you know, I I was a college dean at
0: Stanford. I I tended to see parents who were very interested in cultivating the genius or the Mm -hmm. best-in-class, best-in-show. But in order to know the jealousy, I would have to have had parents open up to me about their own neuroses, or it would have to have been so evident that on the face of it, you could tell. Mm -hmm. You know, occasionally you would see a little bit of the narcissism, like it's all about me, you know, when a parent just shows up and they seem to make it about them, Mm -hmm. you know, instead of really... The child. Again, they're the trainer, the manager that trained this thing to win the dog show. And they want the accolades. And so that's where I think I don't know if that was jealousy or living vicariously or just mm-hmm. a really thin sense of self, such that, you know, they needed the child's light to shine back on them. You know, I, I did see
2: that a lot. I'm not sure I've ever labeled it jealousy though, but perhaps. It's fascinating. And the thing with Leslie Stephen is he was so childish toward the end of his life. And there are many reasons for that. But I'm wondering if in your experience, if anyone, a parent ever threw a tantrum at you. The tantrums come
0: in the form of if there are 10 steps, as we talked about earlier, if if there are 10 steps required for the child to do a thing, Mm -hmm. the parent is going to and you're trying to push back and tell the parent, "Okay, you've done step one and two for them. Um, now, you know, can you be alongside them as they try Mm. steps three and four? Can you watch to be sure there's no disaster as they do steps five, six, and seven? And then by step eight, they've got it. You know, it's Mm. sort of this sense of how a human grows to be capable. The tantrums happen when parents are like, no, 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 but I need to, I need to, right? Mm. I can stack the dishwasher perfectly. I know how to cross the street safely. I will tie their shoes so they don't come apart. And so the tantrum is this kind of, you have forgotten that this young person must learn every single one of those things, and you are well past the time when they should have been taught so that they can do for themselves. You have this sense of, I can control it. If I do it, it'll be fine. What you've forgotten, parent, is you'll be dead one day, and your (laughs) kid won't be able to do any of the things. It's almost like the parent's self is partially constructed out of, what did I take care of for my kid today? What did I handle for them, um, such that I advanced the ball for them? It's, again, that short-term, I did it, instead of the long-term, I taught them to do it.
2: I was covering my mouth during part of that because some of those examples may or may not resonate in my own yeah. home. <laughs> I get it. That, dish, that dishwasher, <laughs> like I'm so compulsive about my stupid dishwasher yes, that everybody, everybody has my number, right? And none of them. Right. And I say, why is no one else loading the dishwasher? Well, because I redo it whenever right. they
0: do. Which is really annoying. Let me tell you. Yeah. yeah. And look, I've been there. I got my favorite. I loved my little cutlery drawer. I like it. All the knives and forks in the right place. So I can right. I, I'm I'm mm-hmm. with you. Mm-hmm. We need therapy mm-hmm. to understand why am I so hurting mm. that I need the control mm. at the dishwasher or in the kitchen broadly. That's where my anxiety shows up in the kitchen.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What what's hurting in me such that this is how I manage? When we make ourselves more well, we make our children's lives so much easier. Mm-hmm. As was the case with Leslie Stephen. Yes. If only he'd been able to access oh, some therapy around his stuff, yeah. imagine
2: how the children would have thrived. Well, you said something so, I think, profoundly true, which is that for us, I mean, his manifested very differently, but for our era, this clinging to overparenting. I think is linked to a fear of death that like, yes, as long as I'm necessary, death can't take me yet. I have a purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think that I have learned my own self that the purpose cannot be another person. Like the purpose can be people, the purpose in different ways. And I'm thinking about how this relates to Virginia Woolf's story and thinking of her mother who made her husband her purpose. That was her job. That was gave mm-hmm. her meaning. That's what provided her a home and safety and everything. And it kind of worked out for her in a way, And except she died very young. But then it caused this legacy of disaster. I mean, it just rolls forward generations, which is so fascinating.
0: Well, let's face it. We were talking about the 19th century when women were second, third-class citizens, and you had to attach yep. yourself to the male figures in your life, be they your husbands, fathers, or brothers, in order to have any hope of uh, being sheltered right. and fed. And, right, so that was, I wouldn't call that a choice. True. Right? Uh, in today's terms, there was no op, it's almost, it's a few steps removed from indentured servitude, which yeah. is one step removed from slavery. Like, these are not, th- th- we are now, thankfully, in this nation, for the time being, in a place where people can choose mm-hmm. and and one does not have to curry favor with one's male relative mm-hmm. in order to have a decent quality life so in this 21st century as we see Amazing. these rollbacks to earlier times yeah. when a person of one gender only was safe and had security and shelter and food if they were attached to a mm-hmm. person of the other gender who's you know those we must not let ourselves roll back to those times of different class statuses for people based on their gender. I mean, I think the story Virginia Woolf lived and her mother lived and her sister lived, all trying to caretake this man Mm -hmm. because, as in Victorian society, he was their only option. Mm -hmm. You know, know, that, that... what a! We do not want to return to that and to the mental health
2: consequences that flow from a life like that. And also, just this is a minor point in comparison to everything you just mentioned, but it it also it infantilized him. So you yeah. know, by the end, he is becoming less and less capable and more and more helpless in a sort of reverse proof of exactly what you're talking about with you know bad parenting. Interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Fascinating.
0: Fascinating.
2: Well, thank you so much for joining me. It was really exciting to get to talk with you. You as well. Thank you so much to Julie Lithcott-Hames for joining us. If you want even more insight into parenting or, like me, you're curious to learn just how much you've already screwed up and how it can still be okay anyway, please check out Julie's books, How to Raise an Adult and Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. And tune in next time to find out which parenting expert made his kids call him by his first name. And finally, if you enjoyed what you heard today, be sure to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T Mobile.